to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last Sunday we celebrated what can be understood as the culmination of the Easter season on Pentecost. As we discussed then, it is the sending of the Holy Spirit which enables our renewal, transforming us so that we might come to know our God ever more deeply, not primarily on an intellectual level, but an intuitive and experiential level. Ultimately, this intuitive way of knowing speaks to our deepest yearnings for eternal life and happiness and far surpasses any cognitive grasping of the life of God. For while the Spirit catches us up in the very life of God, so that we may begin to participate in it in a real way here and now, the divine life we participate in far surpasses our understanding, remaining utterly mysterious. It is this mystery that we take time to contemplate this weekend and will, in turn, Give us the opportunity both to wonder at the glory of our God and gain a deeper understanding of who we are as human persons created in His image and likeness. Before beginning to speak substantively of the mystery we celebrate today, it is pertinent that we keep in the fore of our minds what the prophet Isaiah tells us about God, that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. This is the prophet Isaiah's way of telling us that God's mode of existence is utterly different than ours. Thus, anything said moving forward will hopelessly fall short of describing with any exactness the mystery we celebrate today. This is what theologians call the apophatic or negative dimension of theology. One of the greatest theologians to ever walk the face of the planet, St. Augustine of Hippo, insists on this dimension of theology repeatedly in his work. For example, in Sermon 52, Augustine tells us, If you have fully grasped what you want to say, it isn't God. If you have been able to comprehend it, you have comprehended something else instead of God. Immediately the question may be asked, then why speak at all? Why utter a single syllable? For anything that comes forth from the mouth is incapable of ascending to the heights of divine mystery or transcending the boundaries of time, such that we might, for a moment, comprehend the awful beauty of divine majesty. Such an argument claims, therefore, that the only authentic theology is negative theology, and that there can never be any positive dimension to describing God. And though ultimately it is impossible to disagree with the sentiment underlying the argument, the argument fails. But it fails not because of any capability of human reason, for human reason can never speculate and rationally argue its way to the God of Christianity. Rather, it fails because throughout all of history, God, in His gracious mercy, has humbly revealed Himself to us, and therefore God has also deigned to be spoken of by the human family, to do theology, in order that we might come to know at least something of this mystery, which we instinctively yearn for, in the very core of our being, yet cannot fully describe. 
Why? Because he loves us. It is the same reason we reveal our deepest longings and aspirations to those closest to us. We reveal ourselves to them and thereby entrust ourselves to them because we love them. As Augustine writes in book one of his work, Teaching Christianity, while nothing really worthy of God can be said about him, he has accepted the homage of human voices and has wished us to rejoice in praising him with our words. Notice, please, the unfathomable love of our God on display here. There is no honor we could bestow upon God that would increase his greatness. There are no words we could ever speak to embellish his glory. Both are likewise beyond human expression, and to make such claims would be analogous to saying that an ant could describe the way the human mind works, or that the trees could allow the breeze to contort their limbs and call us by name. Yet God bends down to us and reveals himself to us so that we might speak of him, speak to him, and thereby grow in our love for him, because he knows that only in him is our joy. For another distant analogy, we may think of the way we feel in the presence of someone we admire, or the way a child writes a letter to their sports hero. Just being in their presence, or receiving a response from them, makes the hairs on the back of our neck stand on end. Take this experience and multiply it infinitely, and you will still not feel the joy-filled love our God desires to bestow upon us by making himself known to us. Okay then. Having emphasized the negative dimension of theology, while still upholding its positive dimension based on divine revelation, we take a look at what divine revelation says to us today in our readings. And when we do, two things become readily apparent. First, they do not spell out for us the doctrine of the Trinity as taught by the Church. The reason for this is simply that you will not find such a doctrine stated word for word anywhere in the sacred scriptures, either in the Old or New Testaments. We could say the same thing of the doctrine of the Incarnation, as understood by the multitude of Christians for that matter. To be sure, the doctrine of the Trinity is scriptural, meaning it is rooted in scripture. Were it not, such a belief would be quite blatantly heretical. That said, as St. John Henry Newman says in one of his sermons, though it be in scripture, it does not follow that every one of us should be a fit judge whether and where it is in scripture. Such a statement quite obviously flies in the face of any line of argumentation made by those who insist on having all doctrine spelled out explicitly in the Bible, who continually say, as Newman goes on, they will not believe it till it is proved to them from Scripture, playing the role of Thomas, who would not believe his brother apostles that our Lord had risen, till he had as much proof as they, and who said, except I see and touch for myself, I will not believe. The hard and simple truth here is that the beliefs which make up the core of the Christian faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation, are not explicitly defined in sacred scripture word for word. Rather, it took time for the church to think over the ramifications of the life of Jesus Christ and to be able to describe it in the light of what had been revealed. This is the work of theology, and the process of making sense of what is revealed by scripture is known as the development of doctrine. Therefore, to be a Bible-believing Christian who demands that any doctrine be demonstrated as taught by Scripture word for word is a contradiction in terms. Understanding this to be the case, some make arguments by saying things like, well, it isn't explicitly in the Bible, but it was pronounced early on in the life of the church before the church was corrupted. 
With respect to today's celebration, the line of demarcation between acceptable and unacceptable development of doctrine could be placed at 325 with the Council of Nicaea, which pronounced Trinitarian doctrine. The problem with this line of demarcation is that it leaves us without the doctrine which forms our understanding of the Incarnation, the hypostatic union, which was not pronounced until 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. The line could then be drawn here, though this would leave us without an understanding of the personhood of Christ and his human and divine natures as having human and divine will acting in harmony with one another, which was pronounced as doctrine at the Third Council of Constantinople in 680 and 681. My point in briefly rehearsing these key moments in the development of doctrine is that the Holy Spirit, whose coming we celebrated last weekend, has forever been at work educating the human family about who God is through self-revelation and inspiration, a revelation which reached its climax in the Incarnation. Moreover, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Church continues to explore the meaning of the self-revelation of God in the Incarnation until the end of time, in order that it might enter into deeper relationship with Him. This is the second point demonstrated to us from our first reading and Gospel for today. Our first reading from the book of Exodus is located just after the golden calf fiasco following the first giving of the law in chapter 32 and just before the covenant is renewed with the people of Israel in chapter 34. Here, Moses is given the law on a new set of tables on Mount Sinai amidst the theophany. As God descends upon the mountain, we are told that he cried out, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. After the proclamation, Moses immediately prostrates himself in worship, asking God to make this people his own and accompany them on their journey to the promised land. There are several important elements to note in this exchange and to explore briefly. First, we must keep in mind the context of the episode. The law is being given to Moses, the intercessor and mediator between the people of Israel and God, and it is in the context of the giving of the law where God describes himself, something of his character, if you will, to Moses. For brevity's sake, we might say God is describing both his justice and mercy, which are both always simultaneously present, and together demonstrate his love. In fact, based on the doctrine of divine simplicity, What we perceive as God's justice and mercy in our relationship with God are identical in God. Said differently, God is God's justice, and God is God's mercy. God simply is, as he had previously revealed to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus, saying, I am who I am. That God simply is implies another interrelated doctrine, the doctrine of divine impassibility, which means that God does not change. Consequently, God does not experience emotional movements like we do, such that he is angry in one instant and loving in another. Rather, our perception of God as angry at one time or loving another reflects our existential movement, not his. Consequently, the law becomes a standing revelation, if you will, of God's love revealed as mercy and justice. By the law, God tells us how to live in relationship with him but also how we could violate and fall out of relationship with him. The law, then, does not constrain our freedom. Rather, the law frees us to live in right relationship with God. 
This was precisely St. Paul's point when he tells us in Galatians that we have been freed from the law. Not that we ought to disregard it, but that we ought to live the law in the freedom of love. After all, what Christian would say we ought to do away with the Decalogue? None. Yet some set faith at odds with the law, which is unthinkable to Paul himself, who in 1 Corinthians tells us that obeying the commandments of God is everything. Thus, the law has always been about guiding us so as to live in the free exchange of love between the Creator and His creation. Why? Because while the Decalogue reads, and indeed is a set of rules in a sense, it is more fundamentally a pronouncement of the way things have been created to be, how they are meant to relate to one another in harmony, a reality whose description reached its apex in the incarnation of the Son of God, who tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish, but fulfill the law. The next thing to notice in this passage is the response of Moses to the presence of God, awestruck worship. This is an expression of what is known as the fear of the Lord. It is this awestruck response, which the Bible repeatedly tells us is the beginning of wisdom, for example in Psalm 111 and in chapters 1 and 9 of the book of Proverbs. In his Summa, St. Thomas Aquinas describes wisdom as rectitude of judgment according to the eternal law. In other words, it is seeing things as they have been created to be, or, put differently, it is seeing things as God sees them. Thus, Aquinas goes on to state that the result of living in accordance with wisdom is peace, and thus couples wisdom with the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Therefore, putting together all of this, we might conclude that to live with a posture of awestruck worship is to live as a child of God. This leads us to today's gospel, which begins with perhaps the most well-known verse in all of scripture, found on everything from home decor and fast food restaurant cups to wristbands and shoes around the world. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. In itself, this beautiful passage speaks volumes, but has still more to tell us when taken in context. The verse itself gives us a glimpse of the first two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the eternally begotten Son. Moreover, if we backtrack a bit and look at the context, Jesus says this to Nicodemus as a follow-up to telling him that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Thus, in the span of a few verses, we find, on the lips of Christ, echoes of the Trinitarian life and what its irrevocable love for the human family does so that they might have life to its very fullest. The Father sends the Son in order to destroy the bonds which separate the Creator from the created. And having these constraints destroyed, together Father and Son gift the human family with the Holy Spirit, who, by sanctifying and justifying us, unites the human family to Christ, thereby bringing us into the dynamic love, which is the Trinitarian life. Thus we see three divine persons. We see a Father, who is not the Son, nor the Spirit. A Son, who is not the Spirit, nor the Father. And a Spirit, who is not the Father, or the Son. Yet elsewhere at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we find the Son commissioning his disciples to baptize all people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus does not say baptize all people in the names, plural, but in the name, singular, 
indicating unity among the divine persons. The divine trinity is a plurality such that what is multiple in God cannot be understood nor spoken of apart from what is one in God. We find the same insinuation in the Gospel of John, where Christ tells us that the Spirit will glorify him because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus, we find a Son who possesses all that is the Father's, and a Spirit who possesses all that is the Son's. Therefore, without too much trouble, we posit a unity and equality among the three divine persons. What we end up with, then, is a plurality in unity, in essence one God, but in persons, three. What's more, because all three persons possess all of what it means to be God, what makes the three divine persons distinct from one another is their relationship to one another. The relationships between the three divine persons are, we can say, substantial, in contrast to our relationships with one another, which we could call accidental. Said differently, human relationships are mutually influential, but don't define an individual human person's existence. In contrast, the eternal relationships of the three divine persons constitute who they are as the one God. And these eternal substantial relationships are the one triune God. Having reached this point, it is best to regress back into the silence of contemplation, refraining from uttering more than a whisper concerning the awful beauty of our God, like a secret we dare not speak too loudly of, lest it be repulsed by a multitude of words and vanish from our presence. My friends, today we come into the presence of our God to reflect upon who He is, and what he has done for us, in order that we may continually experience the love which is his life more deeply. By way of summation, we might condense all that has come before down to two key takeaways. First, our God is sheer mystery. Therefore, to say one understands the Trinity is to succumb to the temptation of the original sin, that is, to grasp at divinity and make it our own. Second, and consequently, In the face of such overpowering mystery, the only appropriate response is one of awestruck worship. Like Moses, we ought to bow before the presence of our God, having full confidence in the message of the incarnation and paschal mystery of the eternal Son. That if we have humbled ourselves to live lives of self-sacrificing love united to Him, we will be exalted together with Him who became one with us, so that He might avail us of the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to live in accordance with the law of love, so that we might be continually plunged into the ocean of infinite and eternal love that is our God, from here to eternity. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.